Teaching Children's Church. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, everybody else, you're stuck with me. And um, am I, wow, I just sound really loud, but it's that monitor, isn't it? There's nothing to be done about it. Uh, we're going to pray before we start and uh, uh, see where we end up this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, be with me. You you know what's in my heart. You know what I, I want to share, what I want to uh, bring out. Lord, I, I pray that you would give me grace um, to, uh, to just speak clearly. Um, I pray that you would give me grace to to uh, get out of the way of your spirit, Lord, that your, that your words would um, find their way uh, to folks who are here. Um, I pray for your, for your hand in my life. I pray for your hand in the lives of the folks who are here, um, that, that you would uh, till the soil and, and that the seeds would find good spots and they'd be watered by the spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I... Uh, Appreciate bringing up self-control this morning, Ruth. Thank you, because uh, I I I am not good at self-control. This is my like impulse control is my is my very least favorite thing in the world. Um, whether it's something coming out of my mouth at any given moment or something going into my mouth at any given moment, um, and I'm. I'm, you know, I put on weight this year, and I, I, I do really good for a few days, and then I'm having a morning where I got a lot of stuff going on in my head, and I'm a little stressed out, and I didn't quite get enough sleep, and some tempter shows up with a sewing tin full of cookies. That's what those are. Those are sewing tins. Those. Who keeps ice cream in a tin? What kind of planet? <laughs> the Schwann's guy. I... I'm sorry, I haven't been to Montana University long enough to have groceries delivered to my home. I'm not in that. Anyway, I, for me, impulse control is, is the worst. I have, at the moment, in my freezer, um, a box of ice cream bars. There's one left. And I'm trying to get my diet under control. I put on a bunch of weight because of COVID. It's COVID's fault. Um, Larry lost it. I gained it. I don't even know what happened. Um, but I, I gotta, I gotta get it down because my cholesterol go up and everything else. And I, I, all of this stuff, but the problem is that when there are cookies there or that ice cream bar in the freezer or whatever, it calls to me, right? You know, I can get up early and exercise. I can do all of these things because I have a bigger picture. I need to live X number of years because I want to be at my daughter's wedding and I want to do this and I want to do, I like, I have objectives and those big picture things are exciting, and awesome. You know what I mean? Do you all have those big picture things in life? Just me? I, um, but in the moment, it is so hard to do the right thing. Right? We're, we're going to be looking at Stephen. And um, we're, last week we talked about like the appointing of Stephen and, and sort of the first board of deacons. And, and this week we're going to be kind of looking at... We're going to look at what gets Stephen arrested. The tricky part with Stephen is um, he appears, he has a short little thing where he's involved in ministering in a, in a, uh, a synagogue, and then he's dead, like after giving a really long speech. And I'm, I'm, it's really hard to know how to break this text up to talk about it properly. 
And so I'm doing it in little bits so I don't miss anything and so I don't do one six-hour sermon. Okay? You're welcome. (laughs) So we're diving into this um, and a little bit of background, okay? So what's going on? This is the beginning of the church. And the reason we're doing Acts is because we did a series on what the church is and now we're kind of working into the early church and what it looked like as a model for the modern church, because we want to do what we're doing correctly, right? You, if, if I were to start a farm next week, I would probably go around to some of the more successful farmers and observe and learn some of the basics of farming before I did it myself, because I would inevitably do it wrong if it was all my way of doing things. I can get an amen for that. Like I, <laughs> Y'all are inconsistent. Um, <laughs> so we're looking at at the early church and the early church as a model and we're looking for principles we can learn from it and and so like as we dive into this there is a cultural concept we got to learn about and that is hellenism i talked about it a little bit last week and i think i talked about it in a teaching video at one point Um, hellenism is something that happened um, when alexander the great conquered the world hundreds of years before jesus was born and his solution to like maintaining an empire was we're going to conquer the world and we're going to make everybody learn Greek and we're going to make everybody learn about Greek culture and Greek philosophy and Greek art and they're going to be so bored they'll never rebel. No, not that. Like they'll become Greeks and then they'll be one of us and that'll be how we change the world. And Hellenism was so fantastic that it stuck. Like, and it really stuck. And eventually the Romans came along and they're like, this Hellenism thing works. We're keeping it. And in fact, we're going to model a bunch of stuff in our world after it. And so, like, Greek culture is everywhere. And so you have these Jews who are in Jerusalem who are like, like, like Hebrews, Hebrews, as Paul would call it. They're, they're super Jewish. And they resisted Hellenism. And then you've got a whole other crowd of Jews who are from all over the world. They're called the Diaspora. They lived and grew up and were everywhere. In fact, they were one of the largest religious groups in the empire at one point, like, like that wasn't, you know, following, you know, one Greek god or another, Roman gods, the Greeks stole them, or the Romans stole them from the Greeks and gave them new names, but they were clearly the same thing. Um, the Jews were like a major component in cities all over the world. Right, But they were Hellenized. They had some of this Greek influence. And so we're going to be looking at, like um, last week we talked about these, um, these Hellenized synagogues where the widows weren't getting attention because the people who were distributing food were taking care of the Jewish ones, right? And they weren't paying attention to these Hellenized Jews because, like, those guys go to a different synagogue. We're not focused on them, and they were getting overlooked and not getting taken care of. And so the apostles appoint all of these deacons who are basically Hellenized Jews. They all have Greek names, right, which is a little bit of a misnomer. I don't want to get into it. It's too much. Sorry. Um, Well, everybody had three names, right? But I'm not getting into it. The Jewish name, anyway. So um, these guys all had Greek names, and so they were people who knew the Greeks and were going to work with the Greeks. And so these are the guys who, and Stephen's the first one mentioned. Um, now, you know what? Let's, we'll pick everything up as we go. I'm just taking too long to get there. Um, so the synagogue, right? Like we have in synagogues, we have synagogues spread out all over Jerusalem. At one point, there's, all right, there's a first century Jewish author who says that there were 480 synagogues in 
um, in Jerusalem in the first century, which is probably not true, okay? But it's an over-exaggeration to prove a point. There were a lot of synagogues. And the purpose of synagogues was, like during the time that the temple was gone, you would go to the synagogue and you would learn God's word. It was like going to church when you couldn't go to the big temple church, right? And synagogues didn't show up until the temple was destroyed, and they were a big deal. Your entire life centered around the synagogue. Right? And actually, that was a threat that was laid out often, like, we'll kick you out of the synagogue. If you get put out of the synagogue, nobody in town talks to you anymore. Right? You become like the outcast. Um, and so in these synagogues, these, these little churches surrounding the temple, um, Stephen is doing his thing. His job is to wait tables, right? as the apostles put it, maybe a little jokingly. Right? They said, well, we can't wait tables all day. We won't be able to teach or minister, and so we'll appoint waiters. And so Stephen is one of the waiters, and his job is to wait tables. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. What's Stephen's job? He's a waiter. What's he doing? A whole bunch of other stuff, right? (laughs) He's not just doing the table waiting. Um, Why is this important? Um, It doesn't say that Stephen neglected his job. And in fact, actually, I think um, Stephen was almost certainly doing what his job was. He was ministering to the people there, but he didn't stop and focus only on the job to be done. He had a bigger picture of the job to be accomplished, right? Because we talked about this last week. Every little bit is a component of the larger one. The mission that we have from Jesus is to make disciples, right? Um, baptize, and, um, like, go to the ends of the earth with it, right? Um, it's a, actually kind of a duplicate of um, Adam, be fruitful and multiply, right? Church, make disciples and multiply yourselves. Go out and spread the word. And so Stephen is looking at this situation, and he's saying, I'm going to wait tables, but I'm also going to do big stuff. And in particular, like this, um, grace and power perform great wonders and signs amongst the people. This is the first guy in the New Testament who's mentioned as performing miracles who's not one of the disciples, right? Like, that's kind of a big deal. We don't know if this was before or after they laid hands on him. There's all kinds of weird arguments about that. It doesn't matter, okay? The point is he's doing this stuff. People are paying attention to him, and he's not stopping there, Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. We can pause there before we finish that last sentence. Um, first off, if there was a guy who walked in here and began curing arthritis and you know, bad eyes and, you know, uh, uh, you know, I can't walk. Let me heal you real quick. Like anybody in the room going to argue with that guy? Nope. Pretty much no. Right. Like, like he's not just performing miracles. He's also saying stuff. Right. Because Stephen isn't looking at the little picture. Stephen is looking at the big picture. The bigger ministry, the bigger job. This is a natural outflow, by the way, of the Holy Spirit. Um, The Holy Spirit puts us in a spot where we cannot ignore the needs of the folks around us, where we cannot ignore the heart condition and the lostness of the people that we encounter, the people who are 
um, broken and lost. Uh-oh, something just happened. It's still up there, um, but i got to look back. Uh, so Stephen is out and he's teaching, and that's why there's opposition. People are coming out and they're saying, no, Stephen, the stuff you're saying is wrong. Uh, nope. Let's see if I can. Um, did the Internet go down or something? Oh, the Wi-Fi. This break is brought to you by <laughs> technology gremlins. When you need technology problems, gremlins are the only solution. Um, I, I actually just need the text to look at, so I'm going to – I'm sorry, guys. That's literally what I look at. I don't talk off an outline or anything like that. I just look at the verses, and um, I say whatever comes to mind. Um, I'm not kidding. Now I need my glasses. Okay. Uh, that's the right book of Acts. <laughs> All right. Uh, then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, there's an interesting little point here. Um, because of the grammatical construction, it's possible that this is more than one synagogue, right? Because of the way that the sentence is written. Some translations make it sound like one. Um, in this case, the NIV is making it sound like one synagogue, right? There are some translations that make it sound like two, although some theologians go as far as to say, like, oh, there's five synagogues being talked about here. We just don't know, right? And it actually doesn't matter that much. Um, there is something in here that matters. First off, the freedmen, these would have been Jewish folks, right? These would have been Jewish folks who had been slaves at some time or another. There are about six million slaves in the Roman Empire during this time. I mean, a lot of them. Slaves at that time were not like chattel slavery, which is what the United States have. We hear that and we think of like, oh, you're born into slavery and all that. Um, slaves sometimes would have huge households. They would own their own slaves. There were incredibly wealthy slaves who lived you know, and, and ran businesses and stuff like that. It was a very different world. And you had rights as a slave. You could buy yourself out of slavery. In this case, these are probably Jews who were maybe taken up in conquest because the Romans, they beat up the Jews a lot, right? And they would take slaves with them every time they would beat up anybody. And so these are probably guys who were slaves at some point at different places in the empire, and they just came home, right? Um, the cities listed are like in North Africa um, and, and a little bit in Europe and stuff like that. They're kind of spread out and up into Asia. And so it's possible from all over the empire these guys had gathered up. There's one city in particular that is a huge deal. Cilicia is actually not a city. It's a region, right? As Asia is not a city. It's a region. Um, Cilicia is where Tarsus is. Anybody know what Tarsus is? Like, it's where tartar sauce came from. Um, <laughs> it's where Paul was from. The Apostle Paul... Um, you know, Paul of Tarsus. And so um, it is a distinct possibility. Now watch this. It is a distinct possibility that Paul worshipped in this synagogue. And that is bolstered by the fact. So first off, like Cilicia, he's with his countrymen. 
Um, and they're all in this place, like their cultural group, right? Like if you gather a bunch of Montanans, a bunch of Californians together, the Californians are all going to gather in Missoula, and everybody else is going to go everywhere else, right? Like they're all going to stand in their groups. And, and these folks are all in their groups. And Cilicia, these, you know, it's possible Paul attended this synagogue. That's bolstered by the fact that Stephen is about to get arrested. He's about to be put on trial. And when he's put on trial, they're going to drag him out and execute him. And Paul is going to preside over the execution as like an official, right? Is, nope. All right. Okay. Um, back to my glasses. <laughs> so it is a distinct possibility that Paul, the Paul, the, well, Saul, I guess, but Saul and Paul, anyway, um, that Saul is present and, and a part of these debates and a part of these conversations. There's one other really important thing to know about this, um, and that is that these diaspora Jews, right, like Jewish people that are from all over the empire, they were like super zealots about the temple. Like these guys who came and they lived around the city of Jerusalem, they were more serious about the temple and the laws of Moses and the, the orders and stuff like that than anybody else. And there's all kinds of first century sources that support this idea that they were zealots. Actually, um, there are some scholars who would call them Zionists, meaning that they were all about the city of Jerusalem and Mount Zion, right? Um, and so these guys are hyper aware of the temple which is where Stephen gets in trouble, okay? And it's actually going to lead to his death ultimately. Um, so these guys would have been very serious. And the reason they'd be very serious is because they're mixed in with all kinds of cultures. And if you're going to preserve your culture, right, you've got to be serious about it. That is the dangerous thing about the world we live in. By the way, the world we live in is just not all that friendly to Christianity, right? It's legal. There is that. But you get mocked. You get made fun of. You get, you know, like, like put in a certain box. Like, yo, you're one of those redneck hillbilly guys who, uh, a friend of mine on Twitter, actually, he, he commented on, on a celebrity's uh, Twitter post making fun of Noah's Ark. And he, he got, you know, he got basically 10,000 responses from people who went after him for believing in Jesus, right? Like, it was, it was something. Um, including a lot of Christians, actually. It was crazy. Um, our culture is not friendly to Christians, and so we need to be actually kind of serious about what we believe and what we're about because it's easy to let go of it, right? It's easy to lose control or to lose hold of our beliefs, of what we're about, of our values, of who Jesus is in favor of sort of a more culturized version. Like, oh, well, the world around us says this. Well, maybe Jesus... You know, maybe Jesus didn't actually die for our sins. Maybe he was murdered and it was an example for us. Well, but that's not what most of the Bible says. But there are a lot of people who teach that, right? Like, like, and it's easy to lose it. And so these guys are serious. They are hardcore about the temple and about, um, and about Moses. So they're arguing with Stephen because whatever Stephen is saying, and we don't exactly know what, um, whatever Stephen is saying, it's going against sort of this traditional way of doing things. It is possible, like one of the conjectures about what Stephen taught was, that Stephen kind of went after the temple orders and said, listen, the, the sacrifice system, the sacrificial system, it's over. Like, we don't need that because Jesus was the final sacrifice of the sins of all mankind. You don't have to kill a lamb because you, you, know, because you lied. 
You believe in Christ, and Christ is the Lamb of God who dies as a substitute. We don't really know. Whatever it was, these guys had nothing on him. They couldn't say a word to touch him. They couldn't come anywhere near him. Um, one of my favorite, and this is something I've been thinking about for a couple of days, one of my favorite hobbies for a long time was to listen to debates. I would put on my headphones, and I would get on my bicycle, and I'd ride to and from work, 21 miles to work, 21 miles back. And on that ride, I would listen to, you know, I would listen to guys debating different things about Christianity. And, and there were, you know, like there were two or three guys I really liked. They were, you know, some people like football players. I like debaters. <laughs> I know, because I'm cool. Um, and, and I would listen to these guys debate like prominent atheists, and they would argue about different stuff, and I love that. And, like, um, it, it was always exciting to me. You'd find two or three guys who really knew their stuff and could argue, and it was fun to listen to them because it was like watching Mike Tyson fight, right? You know, that other guy might get, get up and look big and bad, and he might have a huge plan where he was going to make the other guy look dumb, but no plan survives getting punched in the face by Mike Tyson, uh, or by this guy or that guy. And that's what happened with Stephen. Steve here, he knows his stuff. He has learned and he has studied and he has trained. And on the days when he needed to prepare and understand the scriptures, he put the time in to do it. And when the fight happens, he's able to speak for himself, right? I knew a guy when I worked in, uh, in the rehab. He would always say, the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. Meaning, do your work now, Right? If you do your work now, when the time comes, you will be strong. And that's what Steve was. He was a guy. I, I'm just using Steve because I like saying Steve more than Stephen. Um, and because Steve is sitting right there, and I feel like I could put him on the spot. Um, Steve was this guy who studied and knew his stuff. And not only knew it, but applied it. Because you don't get filled with the Holy Spirit by just knowing stuff. The Spirit infests you as you spend time in prayer and you grow holy like the Spirit fills you up and takes you over. And this is a guy who was in that spot. And so these guys would come to argue with him and he would just flatten them out. It was Mike Tyson fights Pastor Eric and it was over, right, before it even started. So verse 11, and they secretly persuaded some men. Now, secretly persuaded is pretty universally translated like this and is pretty universally translated badly. Like a better, like this is a strong word that means they put them up to it and gave them the words to say, right? So like they found some professional false witnesses and they gave them stuff to say. They gave them um, testimony to say. We heard Steve, Steve, Speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, when we get to the trial, like the accusation before the court, we're going to see a little more about this. But we start to see where the early splits begin to happen, where speaking words against Moses um, becomes a big deal, where like you begin to see a separation here. Speaking against Moses is to speak against the law, to speak against the traditions. And in fact... There was stuff in the traditions where, like, rabbis, you know, thousands of years, or like a thousand years after Moses is long dead, would attribute things to Moses and say, oh, well, this is Mo what Moses wanted you to do. But it's just their opinion. And that's the traditions, which comes up in the next little page here. So give me a second. I'm, so, like, 
They're speaking against the traditions. They're speaking against the rules. They're speaking against the stuff that we know and against God. Um, specifically, they're going to accuse him of attacking the temple. There's lots of reasons for that. But one of the things, like as we say, against God, um, by this point in history, um, first century Jews believed that if you attacked or said anything about the temple that was negative, it was an attack on God personally because they equated the temple with God. Um, and that had to do with the Holy of Holies in the middle where God hung out, right? Like they assumed. But then actually, you know, the prophets say, well, the temple's empty um, because the temple is empty. Um, and, and so, like, oh, they speak against God. They're not speaking against God. Like, he may have said something about the temple, but he didn't speak against God. And so they have made this accusation, and Stephen is taken in to trial. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. Now, there are three groups, but one is unique. We have seen the teachers of the law and the elders before in attacking the church, right? This is the third arrest we see in the book of Acts. This is the first time the people are a part of it. And this is a transition point in the history of the church. Um, before the end of the first century, there are records of uh, Jewish prayers, like Jewish prayer books, where they like pray for Christians to be killed and stuff like that. I mean, like it's pretty nasty stuff. And like, like that was about the point in time where you start seeing early Christians say, well, we're not going to go to synagogue anymore then, like... That guy just prayed that I die, so I'm going to not go and hang out with those guys anymore. And then you see, like, where the early church begins to worship on Saturday, or on Sunday instead of Saturday, right? Like, that's where that came from is because, like, they didn't want to worship with the Jewish folks because there was so much hostility. And so they're like, well, well, we'll do Sunday. And Paul talks about that anyway. We're not going to get into it anymore on rabbit trail. So they stirred up the people and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen, Steve, and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Now, remember, this is the Jewish council. This is a mix of Pharisees and Sadducees and, and lawyers and stuff like that. And he's standing there before this semicircle of guys. Um, they produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. Mind you, they said Moses and God. But they're equating Moses with the law. And it is entirely possible that on some level Stephen came out and said, hey, guys, the law won't save you. Right? This is an early message in Christianity. The law will not make you holy. The law will not save you. The law will not be like this thing that justifies you. Only the blood of Christ justifies you. You will never behave well enough to go to heaven. Only Christ is the route that we go. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Like, that is it. Um, and so these false witnesses say, well, he never stops talking against, um, against the law and this place, right? The temple, um, it is possible. Oh, well, actually let's keep going for. We have heard him say this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom of Moses handed down to us. So we went from against Moses and the temple to the law or excuse me, Moses and God, to the law and the temple, to something different again, right? Oh, he's going to do away with the traditions. The traditions are like the Talmud. It's not the, the Torah, right? Like it's a step, well, it's actually like three steps out by that point. Um, like it is not, like he didn't say anything of the sort. And by the way, does anybody recognize this accusation? Sounds really familiar because this is what they said against Jesus, Right? Now, there's another reason why talking about the temple 
um, is a big deal. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom of Moses handed down to us. Um, destroy this place, right? Because Jesus did say, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up again in three days. And then later, as a prophecy, he says, you know, hey, look around you. Not a single stone will be standing on top of another, right? Like, so Jesus did talk about the temple being destroyed. Here's why this is a big deal. Ancient Romans, right? Like, so the Roman Empire, they had very strict rules about temples, very strict. They didn't care if they believed you or not. If you did anything negative toward a temple, it was a death penalty offense. No ifs, ands, or buts. It was a death penalty offense. The reason being is people tend to get really ticked off if you screw with their temples. And Romans were really superstitious. And so they figured if you walked into the temple of Artemis and, like, defaced a statue or something, number one, you're going to tick off the community and the community is going to go after you, and they want peace more than they want anything else. They want peace and taxes collected. Very simple. Don't fight and give us money. Um, it's a good system. And the second thing is they said, well, what if at the Temple of Artemis somebody says something negative, and then Artemis gets mad at the Roman Empire? That's the Roman Empire's problem. And so if you said something negative about a temple, the Romans considered it something they could kill you for. So when they make this accusation... They're making this accusation with the assumption that we are going to put this guy before Pilate and then we're going to kill him, right? Crucify him. Like, that is the plan. It's the same thing they did with Jesus. They had a very clear vision. This is a loophole that they can play out in Roman law. And so they set out. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face was like the face of an angel. So like mine. I just say stuff like that to see how many people are still awake. Um, so his face was like a face of an angel. Nowhere else in Scripture is this phrase used. Nowhere else in Scripture is anybody's face compared to an angel or anything holy or anything else. The closest we find, two instances, Moses receiving the law, right? Like his face glowed and they had to put a white sheet over him so they, people wouldn't stare at him. And then Christ at the transfiguration. The idea being, and there are a couple of opinions on whether or not this is a proper read. I think it's a pretty strong read because of what Stephen is going to say in his speech. Steve is going to talk about all kinds of stuff, and their assumption is that Steve is now going to speak the truth, and the Sanhedrin is done being the, the carrier of the truth, right? Stephen is in a place of holiness. Like Stephen is, is, is showing the glory of God in his countenance, um, so they looked at him, and he looked impressive, like he had this glow about him. And then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And then the fun part starts. Stephen starts talking, which will be next week. Because um, otherwise, this would be another hour, right? I could do it off the cuff if you really want. Um, is all of this true? The problem is... They don't actually care whether all of it's true. But Stephen in the moment is about to step up and, like, they didn't, like, they seized him and dragged him to court. He knows he's in trouble. In the moment, he is not going to look at the little picture. He's going to look at the big picture and he's going to do the right thing, right? And I would argue this is probably something we've seen Stephen do throughout his life, where Stephen is the guy who, you know, his job is to wait tables. You're going to hear about Jesus, right? His job is to wait tables. Oh, you got a lame foot? Let me heal that for you. Oh, my job is to wait tables? You don't agree with my theology? Let's have a conversation about that. 
And that is who Stephen is. Stephen is not the, my job is to clean the floors. Stephen is the guy who is going to point to Jesus over and over and over again. I have a quote, actually. I think this is something that we're called to as believers, and I think Stephen's biggest strength is that he shows us what we're called to be, right? In the face of opposition, in the face of difficulty, in the face of, of hardship, speak the truth in love, right? Point to Jesus Christ over and over again. Point to the truth of the gospel over and over again. Is it my job to do it right now? Well, no, my job right now is to clean the floors. doesn't matter. If it's the opportunity, I'm going to say it. Um, Teddy Roosevelt once said, keep your eyes on the stars and your feet on the ground, right? And that is our call, brothers. That is our call, sisters. We have work to do. I, I, the example of this that I thought of this morning, I heard through the grapevine about some, some staff at the school who um, said that uh, they're able to see where Jeremy and Stephanie and the work they're doing with the kids here in this community, right, it's making a difference in their lives. Like they're making a real clear impact and it's attributable to the work that they're doing, Right? Could you imagine being able to point to that and say, this is what God did through me? I remember I, uh, I did Bible study when I worked at the home. I had a kid who, the first time he came to my Bible study, a big, awful tattoo of a skull on his arm. It was so just crappy. Uh, I'm sorry. It was really poor quality. Um, <laughs> and he made it five minutes into this. Like, this group was good, and we were doing this Bible study thing verse by verse through James or something like that. And he threw something at me, and they carried him out, like, while he was yelling and cussing and everything else. He was locked up for beating another kid with a baseball bat. I mean, he was nuts. I baptized that kid, like, a year later. I mean, it was <laughs> – and I don't think it was that great of a thing on my part. I think God did amazing stuff in this kid's life. And there were a bunch of people – that, that made that happen, the lady who served his breakfast, right, helped make that happen. The people who sat down with him and dealt with the awfulness in his life made that happen. Um, the reality is that, that folks may say, oh, Jeremy and Stephanie are making a big difference, but there are things that make that happen that are beyond them, right? There are volunteers who show up. There are people who bring desserts. There are people who put up with it, right? Because kids are awful. I mean, no amen for that, right? And we know it happens. We know it happens. We know that sometimes there are stains on the floor or sometimes there are little tiny damages to the walls or, or obnoxious things left behind or written on stuff or whatever. Like, it happens. But you know why? Because Jeremy is making a difference in the lives of lost kids. And that's going to be messy. And I know there are other people in the room here who make a difference in the lives of the people they come in contact with, right? And that is our objective. That is all we exist for, folks. If, if you believe we exist so your name can be on a roll, like, oh, I belong to that church, that's not what we're here for. It's not. I... I uh, when I worked in the Presbyterian Church, the Presbytery owned um, a building, and they continued to put flowers on the altar even though there was no pastor and no congregation because somebody left an enormous sum of money to put flowers on the altar every Sunday, and until they got rid of the building, they had to keep doing it. And so, like, there was a florist in the community who got money from the Presbytery, and they'd go in and put the flowers on the altar and then throw away the old ones 
in an empty building. But you know what? There are churches all over the country that are that way. They have a room full of people, but every one of them is spiritually dead. They don't care about anything but showing up and checking their box. Isn't it true? I even, I'll own it. I've been that guy for years of my life. (laughs) While I was a minister, I was that guy for a while. It happens. Guys, it's big picture time. Right? It's big picture time. I I watched a video this week of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about um, training as a kid and how much he He'd be sore and sick, and he's like 15, and he'd get up and go to the gym anyway. You know why? Because he had pictures of bodybuilders, such as they were in the 1920s or whatever, um, all over his wall. And every day he'd spend a certain amount of time looking at him and saying, I'm going to be like that. He'd say, every time I picked up a weight, that was one step closer to looking like that. He said, I'd be sore and sick and miserable and everything else, and I'd smile because every day I knew I'm one step closer to looking like that. Right? Anybody ever do that when you're farming? You go out and you make a pass over a field with your sprayer and you say, this is one step closer to being a loaf of bread. No? Telling you, every person you come into contact with, every person you do business with, every person you deal with, you have the potential for it to be nothing or one step closer to a soul accepted into eternity. I'm banging this drum a lot the last few weeks, but that's what the church exists for. We get lost on this. We get confused on this. The reality is, like, we're saved because Christ died for us. And he died for everyone else. Can't be like the guys in the Titanic. You remember the boats? This is an old sermon illustration from, like, eight years ago, you know, where they're all in the boats, and they're like, well, we can't pull anyone in. They'll mess up our boat. So let them drown. It's not who we are, folks. We're here to rescue. We're to save. Do you not know that all that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things because they look at the big picture and not the cookies. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, turning away from cookies at every turn and ice cream bars, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Eric, why are you breaking that out? Because, guys, this is training time, right? Sunday morning is training day. I am bringing the word for you. When you get up in the morning, you get that hour where you're drinking coffee and you get the choice between scrolling Facebook or using the time in a real way, right? You got the choice between the cookies or living a few extra years. Cookies are, might be worth it. Those are really good cookies, John. Um, be disciplined. Look at the big picture. The world is lost. The world is dying. People you know are miserable in the core of who they are because they have no hope for tomorrow. You think there's a reason the bar is full all the time? Why farmers drink away their families and their, and their land? You think that happens because, like, oh, well, alcohol tastes that good? No, it's because they're empty and they're trying to fill a hole inside themselves. I did it. I mean, I did it for years, and I'll tell you that's the truth. They need the gospel. They're dying. They're miserable. They're hurting for the gospel. Guys, our job is to share it. 
train. Learn what you believe. Learn why you believe it. Find a training partner. Look around you. There are people who you can be close with who can help you grow spiritually. Ask them. Like, I didn't hear no bell yet, right? Guys, we got work to do. I know I'm banging this drum a lot, but I can't do anything else with Stephen. I'm sorry. Like, what are you going to do? Like, this is who he was. And this is what I get out of the text. This is what I think Luke meant us to get. Let's close in prayer. My challenge for you is, my challenge for you is to run the race. Train. Heavenly Father, I pray that all of us would recognize the, the urgent need to keep our eyes on heaven and our feet in the dirt. Lord God, help us to remember that everything that we do is an opportunity to do your, do your work, do your ministry, do your job. I pray for your grace on, on all of us. Um, I pray that we would be people who, you know, we walk in the door at the end of the day and we're tired and we have a choice between reading the Bible to our kids or, or praying goodnight with our children or whatever. And, you know, we turn away from the cookie that is TV and, and spend time being spiritual leaders in our families. I pray that, that we would get up in the morning and, and turn away from the box of cookies that is wasted time and spend time in the Word. I pray that you would turn us into people of prayer, people who are, are athletes in God's kingdom, pursuing your goal and desiring to be holy. And I, I pray, Lord, that, that um, you, you would help me to not be a hypocrite this morning um, in this. In Christ's name, amen. Have a good Sunday, folks.